earlier today, we had an incident here on Ohio State's campus. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. And, right. I have heard about it in one of my classes, but one of the parking garages a student went off of. I don't yeah. know the best way to say that. There's no good way. Yeah, there isn't. And um, I think something interesting to note was I got that email, too, and I like I kind of heard about it in some group me's, um, especially Never Walk Alone, which is um, one of the mental health initiative clubs I'm part of here. And OSU's official report on it was that an unidentified man somehow fell off of the top of the Lane Avenue parking garage, which I don't know. Um Pretty difficult to do. Pretty difficult to do, um, considering that there are, like, barriers which you would have to kind of cross first. Four feet. Right, yeah, so I have no idea why they chose to report it that way, um, but, yeah, it was another really, really unfortunate incident. Hmm. Yeah. What was that club that you said you were a part of? Never Walk Alone. And what's the what's the basis for that group? Um, well, it's basically just it's run by um, I think Ali Rumbog, um, and she is an incredibly kind girl. And I think she her goal starting the club was to make a safe space for people who were mentally ill. So, um, for example, in the meetings, um, we talk about things like, or they talk about things, I don't, don't, like, run the club, but they talk about things like fundraisers specifically oriented towards mental health um, that you we can get involved in. We, or they discuss controversial topics or um, important topics on the subject, and... Um, noise from that was really loud, I'm sorry. You discuss topics about them? Yeah, and then um, in the group me, it's a kind of a place for if anyone is having a bad day or having trouble to just text and, sorry, to just text and um, say what's wrong, and then, you know, automatically people will jump to help them. It's actually a nice thing to see because it reminds you both that, because, like, I have people in this group me from my classes that I know, and I don't know them very personally, and I would never assume based off of a surface-level analysis of them, that they would have any sort of, like, issues like this or mm-hmm. um, kind of these struggles, but it it really um, kind of changes your view of mental health. And it, it for me, it kind of really made me realize, like, how many people am I sitting around in these classrooms and these lecture halls that, you know, have maybe had a suicide attempt, that have been institutionalized, that have been in rehab for an eating disorder, that have struggled secretly with these certain things that are, um, you know, bipolar. And it just, it kind of blows your mind to think about the breadth of these things because it affects everybody. I think the first thing that comes to mind for suicide with me is always veterans. Like, we know that about, like, once every hour there's one committing suicide. And so it's very systematic, it seems to me. Like, the, the issues that we have... Uh, with mm-hmm. suicide, I'm not sure. There's no way to know this, but I feel like that's a new thing. That it's coming at this size. So you know, what are the reasons? Why is that? What's causing the distinct change between uh, people appreciating their lives and wanting to be on this planet now compared to the past? There's no way for us to check. Right. But I do think that it's unusual that the amount mm-hmm. of people committing suicide in our day and age. Yeah. I wonder if it has. This is kind of weird, but as at, when I start to think about us being able to live really long if we're somehow able to figure out how to defeat those aging, at a certain age, you just kind of 
die, and I feel like as people as we're increasing people's ability to survive longer, if people just I don't know, like some people just lose the reason for living, and they just right. want. So for me, I'm very positive, and I feel like I do a lot to take care of myself mentally on my mm-hmm. own, and I do that. So then when I go to class, I don't really think about other people. And I had lunch with someone the other day, and he said how he took an entire year off of school because he was really depressed mm-hmm. and really stressed. He's like, I really wish someone had just checked in on me and asked right. if I was okay. And I was, I'm just sitting there kind of thinking, like, that, that's... That never crossed that my mind. Nev- never crossed my mind. You wouldn't think... Yeah, because you, you just wouldn't think. And, like, another thing um, that I've kind of used social media for that's helped me come to this understanding... Um, as well as just honestly, like reading books, I like the Bell Jar, for example. Uh, Sylvia Plath, famous poet, um, she wrote it, and it's it's uh, a real story. It's a real um, narrative that she changed some of the names in, and about her struggle with bipolar depression. And for all intents and purposes, um, she was just another normal girl um, who was really smart, really talented, had popular friends, had potential, and then she all of a sudden just fell in this hole and I, I this is a little off topic but one line from that book like sticks with me and probably will for a very long time and I think it's probably one of the best descriptors of mental illness that I've read and it's she was talking about how it didn't matter where she went in the world she was like I could be in Paris France under the Eiffel Tower but I would still be within the stifling air of the bell glass that was over me, like the bell jar that was over me. So she described it as kind of being like in this jar, like, Mm -hmm. and anywhere you went, anything you did, it was through the jar. So it wasn't like anything external could, could really, you know, change it. It wasn't like moving towns or moving cities could help or, you know, going to an amusement park. She was right. just like... Because I think for a lot of people, it's pretty evident that lifestyle changes are the solution that they need, but there are, like, the majority mm-hmm. of the cases are people who genuinely, the chemicals in their brain cause them to feel a way that's entirely out of their control. Like, there right. are people who it's obvious that they are the cause of their own mm-hmm. issues, Absolutely. and then there are other cases where the person didn't do anything to put themselves in that position. Right. It's just as a result of their environment, it happened. Yeah, and a good, I think a good example of some of those, those disorders, and people usually generally understand um, that these types of issues have physiological causes. There's not really much debate about schizophrenia and kind of like, oh, just don't hear those voices, you know? Like, you hear that a lot with depression, with anxiety, with um, ADHD, with, mm. uh, you know, other, other disorders. Um, but, for example, with schizophrenia, it's pretty established that that is something that is not out of someone's is not in someone's control like there are things you can do there are therapies you can do that will help but ultimately um you know people who get schizophrenia it just kind of hits them basically out of nowhere and they're suddenly influenced by this thing and people have sympathy for that to some extent or at least the kind of understanding that that is something very unfortunate that happens to someone without any good reason, and the same thing kind of with bipolar disorder, I think. Mm-hmm. But then it's interesting because you'll you'll turn inwards to some of the more common ones, and I think these are different because unlike schizophrenia and unlike bipolar disorder, these can have causes that are not um, just kind of... Well, I don't really know what the word I'm looking for. Like I, innate biology. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so they're not, like, genetically predisposed. Sorry, they can be, but there are people who are not genetically predisposed in any way. 
depression or anxiety that will just develop it, you yeah. know, because of things. So are most, when, when we talk about mental illness, are mm-hmm. these often, are, are these chemical imbalances? Is there, hmm. we're talking about ADHD. I'm going to, I'm going to stop you right, right there with chemical imbalance actually, um, because this is something that is, it's incredibly pervasive throughout um, just any health field and uh, in like the American culture, right? Like we see these memes on Twitter and stuff and about depression, like, oh, where's my serotonin? And and, and the chemical imbalance theory, sorry, I just kind of went a little on a tangent, but I feel like this is very important to say because it's one of the biggest misconceptions people have about um, mental illnesses. <clears throat> and this misconception is that all of these disorders are caused simply by a low amount of chemical in the brain. And then, but then if you think about that, you kind of deconstruct that and you learn a little more about the brain, it seems a little too good to be true, right? Like our brain is this incredibly, incredibly complex organs. Yeah. Like that it could be that simple. And, um, and it's just, it's very far-fetched and actually how that theory was come upon is not based on scientifically sound evidence. Rather, um, it was the, the antipsychotic drug Risperdrol, I think I might have pronounced that wrong. Um, I think it was initially meant to treat high blood pressure, but when or hypertension, but when given to people, they noticed that it induced depression and it acted on um, I think dopamine and serotonin. So from there, the the whole conception was okay. So if this this drug can induce depression in people, right? So then, um, like, what this drug does chemically in your brain must be the cause of depression. You know, so... And do you agree with that, that that drug was the cause of the depression? Yeah, absolutely, because uh, it was... Um, they would give this drug to people in clinical trials, and they would report, um, as a side effect, this melancholy depression, right? Um and if you look up the drug, that is consistent with its chemical mechanism of action. But the the mistake the researchers made in in positing that um, kind of like the anti drug of risperidol would then cure depression, right? By you know what I mean? Because like they thought that since risperidol could in, induce depression by altering the levels of um, dopamine and therefore serotonin in your brain, that low dopamine and serotonin, you know that was why people were depressed. Does that make sense? Like, so they, they, they said, okay, I found the cause and they labeled it as the cause rather right, than like right. digging deeper to try to figure out more about it. Not, well, not necessarily. Um, there's a lot more to it and there's a lot of other stuff that went into building and kind of foundationalizing this misconception. Um, there was a ton of influence from, from Big Pharma because obviously that makes them money when people... And I'm not. I'm not trying to um, denounce uh, any sort of psychotropic medication. I am on Lexapro, an anti-anxiety med. I take meds for my ADHD. I'm not saying that these meds do not work, but I do not think that it is applic- applicable um, in the context of the brain, with this it being this incredibly, incredibly complex organ with these different neurotransmitter systems. And neurotransmitters don't even. Um, like, you can't just point at serotonin and say, this is mood. Like, a neurotransmitter has effects based on 
what its receptors do and where it is in the brain. So it's not just like one neurotransmitter has these certain effects and the other one has this certain effects. It's like they all can do everything, you know? So to say, to say, right. So to say that a lack of one of them, just a simple lack of one of them causes depression is kind of fundamentally incorrect. And it's kind of the same thing as, as saying, um, okay, so you have a headache and you take aspirin and your headache improves. And so this must mean that your headache is caused by a lack of aspirin, right? Hmm. Yeah, okay. Okay, so yeah, and that's kind of um, the logic they're using by by saying that, oh, we have certain drugs that either induce depression or cure depression, and since these drugs do things, then depression must be caused by um, different levels, different levels of neurotransmitters, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so <clears throat> that is, and it's a simple explanation, media... And this is a whole other topic I could talk about for hours, but the media quite frequently um, will take scientific findings and completely distort them. You know, it's um, not just scientific findings. Not well, any, everything. Every piece of information. Right. Yeah. Good point. But like, especially <laughs> scientific findings. Well, it makes you realize how harmful it can be, though. Yeah. When you broadcast yeah. something that's not based off of logic or reasoning or, or like yeah. scientific data, but mm-hmm. uh, the perspective of someone that they want to emit over a large group of people. And like something that occurred right. to me when you were talking is I'm like, well, what are we eating? Like, what are we putting in our bodies to right. create the, the biome Right, the FDA actually doesn't regulate so many things. Like any um, any health supplement you buy, like any I didn't even think of that. You know, is not FDA regulated. They could be putting whatever they want in there. And I can talk more about health supplements and like especially like neurocognitive enhancers, like five HT. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 5-HT, which people buy and take because they think it helps. Um, GABA, people often buy these GABA pills, which apparently work by raising the levels of GABA in your brain, which is true. Um, that is, that is a good anxiety cure, but they... Do we know the full implications of what that does to you? Well, no, because GABA doesn't even cross the blood-brain barrier. Any neurotransmitter cannot pass through the blood-brain barrier because the blood-brain barrier only lets pass through small, lipid-soluble, uncharged uncharged molecules. We don't know that. Right, yeah. And so you take these pills and you buy them. If we bought those pills, we'd have have no no idea. idea. Exactly. And I mean... And we're probably more like most people in that regard, but that specific instance than you and not knowing. So why are there so many of them being sold at every place you go? Because people want an easy fix, right? And I fell into this pitfall. Right, Right, yeah. Like, I kind of fell into this pitfall before I um, was actually treating my anxiety in a way. And I don't want to say that holistic treatments are not the way. Mm -hmm. I absolutely think if they work for you and that is your chosen path, then by all means, go do that. Like, it is whatever is best for the individual. But in my case, that didn't work for me. And I, um, you know, went to these health stores and bought these supplements. I did a little more research, but... Mm -hmm. um, you know, I almost bought into it. But like know? outside of medication, what right. what is like the neurological impact of the amount of like fat and oh God. sugar this and is a salt great that people one. Because like I can't imagine that at least some of these psychological issues that we're running into with a lot of people are as a result obesity of Obesity has a huge impact. I'm sure, yeah. And, it, yeah. and I've always heard that obesity is the largest cause of death in America because of heart condition and... Right. All of the negative aspects of that. So, do you think that? Uh, what, what do you think would cause more good if humanity, mm-hmm. or more specifically Americans, were to eat in a way that benefits them rather than in a way that they enjoy? 
um, or all of these uh, potential medications. Like, right. Is is it lifestyle changes or is it medications or is it like obviously mm-hmm. there's a gray area that would right, be the yeah. ideal scenario. But like, what do you think are the objective truths okay. that no one is actually using right now? Like, what are what are we not implementing? Absolutely. Um, you bring up a very good point with obesity and your diet, actually, because, okay, so something a lot of people don't think about is the nutrients we obtain from food are drugs. They are drugs like any other drug, right? Food is just at its core made of all of these chemicals, and these chemicals affect our body and brains the same way any other um, endogenous drug would. So, so what you are eating has a direct effect on not only um, your body composition and overall physical health, but your mental health as well. And this is a relatively new frontier, but uh, the gut microbiome is actually being really focused on now and its its implications for mental health because the gut is... I think people are calling it, like, the new brain. Well, like, um, I think here's something that... So I was talking to one of my friends mm-hmm. recently, and he's in med school, and I was like, what's something that you could tell me that you've learned that I right. have no idea of being in business school? And he was like this. When you eat something, your stomach structures around that in a way that causes you to desire whatever it was that you have recently eaten in the future. So if you're a vegan, right? And then oh, I did you, not know that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, so it, it, it craves whatever it was you just most recently had. I so have no idea. That huh. is why when you're, you, let's say you have a habit of eating really healthy, mm-hmm. which everyone has done for at least a certain amount of time, right. and then you eat unhealthy food. Your body you notice, yeah. you hate it initially, but that's what you desire next. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Because... Once you start eating vegetables, that's what your body desires, and it's the same thing for burgers. That's an incredibly good point, um, because actually I have, like, personal experience with this. Um, Like, back when I was really athletic in high school, and I'm still moderately athletic, so I still eat, like, I would say a pretty healthy diet, but, like, back then I was super healthy, and any time I would, like, smell McDonald's, it would make me feel sick. So what about, you said gut is in your brain. The first time I really heard about... What's it called? Um, thinking about your health down there. And right, yeah, gut microbiome. Gut microbiome. When I was working at the startup in Chicago a couple years ago, they had these yogurt um, things. It wasn't yogurt. My, it was like a live culture kind of thing? Yeah, and it was right. uh, a drink that you drank in the morning. It started with a K. Oh, my gosh. Are those those like Korean yogurt drinks? Yes. <gasps> I've actually had those. I read so about that. My brother lives in South Korea. Is it the thing that you drink at the end of a meal? This is going to be good. So they they Otherwise, anyway, continue. They had it for free startup, so I drank it all the time. And one of the guys on my team worked from Belarus, and he was like, yeah, we always had it back there as kids. Our parents made it for us. It wasn't like this in this container, but, like, we had it. Mm-hmm. And I'd never really thought about the importance of, like, what your – can you explain what a gut microbiome yeah, is? Is it just absolutely. having to do with yogurt? Or well, so basically, <laughs> inside of your body – is an environment and it's not mm-hmm. like a jungle but it's like the human biology and so the human flora and fauna of these microorganisms there's so much life inside you. of us and like the health Absolutely. of it is determined by what we put inside of it so yeah like, they eat what I, we eat yeah, they so consume what we consume and they are sorry to interrupt no, go ahead. they are solely responsible like we have a ton of bacteria everywhere, right? And inside our gut is absolutely no exception. They do an incredible amount of things for us and keeping us healthy and warding off um, disease and infection and illness and 
um, you know, just kind of like certain deficits and an imbalance in this microbiota can can be very detrimental to our health. And it's, like it's important what we eat and the gut, the health and kind of like, yeah, the health of the gut microbiome are related because they consume everything we do, like Patrick said. And um, like, so if we're healthy, our bacteria are, and mm-hmm. that's hugely important. So what kind of, what are the big, is, are there like the biggest things that play into your gut microbiome? For sure, meat. Meat? Yeah, yeah like meat has an absurd amount of bacteria in it, right? Mm-hmm. Positive or negative effect? Um, just it has an effect. I, I would say you are probably more likely to lead a healthy life, especially without red meat. Mm-hmm. Like you could get by with the other forms of meat, but red meat is known for being something that causes your insides to have a very negative reaction. And like all of this is pretty, uh, like there are scientific documentations of it, but it's a really difficult thing to track as you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Makes sense. I actually wouldn't. I feel like... So do you think... How do you... Here's why. How do you track a human's microbiome over the entire course of their life to see how it affects their life and to see what type of changes would have also affected it? Because everyone has a unique biome. Right. So you can't do a lifelong A-B test between two people because it's their entire life and it changes every single day Mm -hmm. based on what they eat. So I think that's why we don't really have any definitive answers when it comes to... How do we set our body up in the right way? And obviously right. there are tendencies, like if you were to eat vegetables rather than candy, your microbiome would probably be a bit stronger because you're getting a bunch of minerals that are that we know are good for you. A couple of the things that right. you guys are bringing up are making me, it just doesn't pop into my head a lot, but AI. I'm just thinking to be able to get lots and lots of data on an individual, use that to predict what's about to happen and then see what actually happens in the human body mm-hmm. to then get feedback to improve the system and that happens every single second. I think AI checking in with people is really, really going to take the glass ceilings away from science because mm. a human looking at something can only track it so often, but if we have a computer whose job it is to be tracking whatever metrics we decide, it makes it so that there's nothing that you can't research and analyze. And when we're talking about medication that fit, that helps some people and doesn't help others, mm-hmm. to be able to see how a body reacts and well, to, to actually, shape the medication. Well, actually, there's already kind of a way to, to, to know how you're going to react um, to certain drugs, and it's based off of your genetics. Um, I'm glad you brought this up because this actually touches on another important sub, sub, ah, subject, subject in kind of the ever-progressing field of mental health in the brain, and it is genetic testing. And... We have so many certain genetic markers that will um, can tell us about how we will, we will react to drugs. For example, the amount of plasma proteins in your body, which is determined genetically, um, controls your general, uh, let's say, tolerance to drugs, right? Because um, how drugs work is once they enter the bloodstream and are kind of you know, circulating through your body at equilibrium, meaning there's as much being absorbed as there's much as, as there is leaving. Um, so uh, some of the drug will be excreted, but that is the, uh, the parts of the drug that can't be reabsorbed back into the bloodstream, right? And plasma proteins will attach to these molecules and hold them in the bloodstream, meaning that the drug will continue to be at higher concentrations. And so some people have more plasma proteins than others, so um, they'll be affected more strongly by drugs in general. And you can figure, that's just one of the many things you can figure out um, through genetic testing. And this also helps us Mm -hmm. kind of determine 
which um, drugs are best for which individual. So people have a different tendency to absorb more or less of a drug based off of... The amount of plasma proteins in their blood. That's just one of many examples of the individual differences we have that control our like behavioral um, and physical responses to endogenous chemicals. So, like so that. what's your thought on technology getting smaller and smaller, and us being able to start to get information on the inside of the human body? Is that something that scares <laughs> you and is like, wow, that's really invasive, or is that like, wow, we're going to be able to solve so many problems in humanity? With that? <laughs> My first thought is like that one episode of Miss Frizzle where they shrink down into the tiny school bus and go through the human body and they go through the butthole. <laughs> that was what I was thinking about, too. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> on a more serious note, though, um, <clears throat> I think I personally have very liberal views on what is in- invasive scientifically. Like, I personally would donate my body to science. I don't, you know, whatever. But, like, you would run into, I think a ton of um of push kind of kickback from a large amount of the population because mm-hmm. it would be considered incredibly invasive for them and a lot of people don't really they say I, I think one of the things about us is we say we want to know what is wrong. Well, but we only want to know what's wrong if it has an easy fix, right? Do you believe the majority of deaths around the world were preventable? Like they died from something that could have been like fixed with the system? With with what system? So, like, for example, somebody dies because of a waterborne illness in a place where the water supply isn't as good as it could be. Mm -hmm. They died from something preventable, something humanity could have figured out a solution for. And so from my perspective, I'm sort of thinking, well, if we can maximize our scientific knowledge by taking a look inside and actually seeing what's going on in our bodies, then... For the sacrifice of everyone's privacy, it might be worth it for future Mm -hmm. generations of this planet to be able to live their life to the fullest possible potential rather than dying from something that we could have figured out. Right. Um, I think that's an interesting point, and I don't necessarily think that this would eradicate all and any kind. Like, this isn't a panacea. This isn't, like, a cure-all. I don't think this proposal is, but I think it would definitely be very important into kind of gaining a greater understanding like of what exactly is going on in us at a given time. And with the brain, that would be huge. Like if we could somehow figure out a way um, to get some sort of, um, what is the word, micro computer in the brain. Yes. And we're already kind of, uh, mm-hmm. we have some people that are working on that I um, think what in mice, be, but imagine. that would be incredible. Like a cyborg interface, like cyborg meaning part human, part robot, where you have a processor in the back of your brain with a chip, and you can upload whatever information you want to the right. back of your head. You That's know, you want to learn a language, and you just did. sit there for eight hours, and it downloads all of that information to your brain. We were talking about that the other day, right? Right, yeah. We were talking about... The crystalline... Um, the immediate thing that comes to my mind is the album K.O.D. talking about the prevalence of an increasing use of pills... Oh, huge. Well, here's what I think. Like, you imagine anyone being prescribed pills, like, how many of them wouldn't need them if they had $200 million in a house in Hawaii, in a private jet? Like, how many of these people's problems are caused by the societal... It's it's their environment. Like, if you are a, like, hands-on... $10 an hour worker, you're, you're going to run into so many more health risks. 
it's a complete different story than a trust fund baby that knows they're taken care of for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And they have access to all of these um, resources, this, yeah, people. Exactly. And so this what it makes me think is that like there are certain people with $200 million there in Hawaii. They still have these issues. And those mm-hmm. are the people who we will figure it out later, right? But for now, those are the immediately preventable situations where we have people who are addicted to opioids. We have mm-hmm. people who take Adderall but don't need it. We have people who take Xanax but don't need it. Not right. to say that there aren't people that genuinely need those things in their life But the to majority function. of those users are, you are going to find don't need it. Like, you're right. You're absolutely right. The Adderall thing you bring up is um, very interesting and I think it's the lesser talked about of like a college of kid right like yeah. you're a pre-med college student and you're convinced you have ADHD because everyone else is studying 16 hours a day and you can't summon yourself to do it and now I completely understand how ADD pulls you away from doing what you need to be mm-hmm. doing but if you weren't a college kid and you're a retired person in Florida would you be taking Adderall to go to the beach no it absolutely has to do with this go 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 culture it's completely situational to the systems that we have set in front of us I if you can't respond to them that. you take the pills yeah we we are this is i think college kids using Adderall and this may be kind of a, a push but or a stretch but i think it is us adapting and using the tools we have these we are getting such increased workloads we are getting all of this education and pressure crammed down our throats. And in today's kind of very capitalistic society, you have to come out on top. It's competition. It's comp- competitive, and you have to have an edge. And what does Adderall do? It gives you that edge. You can go to the gym and do your homework and, like, write a book and do all this stuff in one day and feel great. All without and, eating. Yeah, and why would you not take that? Why would you not take that option? It's better. Like, you need to – if you are a college kid and you work 40 hours a week, say, and I have some friends that do – and you still take a full class load, how in the hell are you supposed to to adequately study for these tests? Adderall, you know? Right. And, and, and the more you kind of think about it, the more you can't, you almost can't really blame people for resorting to this because it's kind of what we No, I don't think in to. any way is it the fault of the people taking it. Mm-hmm. I think that, honestly, and I don't mean to speak out against these people, but I, I think it's really unjust that pharmaceutical salespeople are financially incentivized for more Absolutely. people to be prescribed ADHD medicine. Like, they are financially incentivized to suggest that there are twice as many people mm-hmm. that have ADHD. So, yeah, I, I don't think it makes sense that... I don't think it's moral that there are a lot of people who are financially incentivized for more people to take these drugs. Because right. something I learned in high school, and I mean... It was high school, so who knows if it was correct, but there's no legitimate threshold for having ADHD. Like, you cannot look at a brain and say, at this point you have ADHD, and at this point you don't. There's no way to say that there is a line that you cross where somebody has it. Well, it's all based... You could have a doctor who would say that someone has ADHD. You could have another that say they don't, right? Not... Okay, I'm gonna... I, I was up with you until there, and... Um, I guess it's, I feel like it would be important to reveal my bias on the subject, and it is that I do have ADHD, and I have been um, clinically tested for it, and I also work in a lab where mm-hmm. we do a ton of stuff with executive functioning. Yeah, so I'm so, saying for you, it so would be I know like, exactly. every doctor you would talk to would say yes for you, because you legitimately have it. But what yeah, I'm yeah, saying yeah, yeah. is, but there, there you're right. No, I get what you're saying. And some would say do have it, and others wouldn't because of the financial inclination that they have. Right, no, I, I do understand that. Um I think what you're more of what you're getting at is some doctors do 
a legitimate three-hour um, diagnosis. Like you, okay, so here's what should happen, right? And this is what doesn't happen all the time, and which is very shocking. I completely agree with you on that. Um, but here's what should happen for people that have um, or that want to be diagnosed. And I'll offer some counterexamples of stories that I've heard where people have just walked in and gotten a prescription, and that's horrible. But like, what should go down is um, you go to a clinical psychologist. You get a one-hour diagnostic interview. Um, they send you home with a kind of a symptom checklist, they give one to your teachers, they give one to your parents. Um, so they get this diagnostic interview, get all of your history, any kind of things that might have led up to this, your you know childhood history, if you're an adult, etc. Kind of get to, and from this interview, they decide if you're qualified for testing, right? And so then say you do exhibit some of these symptoms, you go on to this three-hour cognitive testing battery. And I think what they did for me um, and what they generally do for um, most people is they have um, a digit span test, which is measures your working memory, which is noticeably lower consistently in people that have ADHD because it's a big part of executive functioning. Um, they give you certain... They give you, like, I, I don't know how to term this logical reasoning things they give you I, i've never been tested so i have right. no idea what yeah. the process of but yeah, i'm just what i'm trying to get at is it is very it is very extensive and and then they give you a giant personality inventory that yeah. can basically tell if you're lying what and then it, they well, give you an iq test and they do all of these extra things and that's what should happen but what, what does happen is people walk into these offices they say i have adhd the psychiatrist there says um okay, great, here is 50 milligrams of Adderall. Like, and they walk out. Sure. My thought process is, what is the life of someone with ADHD like before medication was a thing? I could I could answer that. Like, 100 years directly ago. Directly for you, because I got diagnosed but like, when I... Oh, well, you're the saying... The year 1900, oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. no one had Adderall okay. as a yeah, prescription right, right, for right. not being able to pay attention or having issues with hyperactivity in your brain. Mm -hmm. so, That's a good question. But what it makes me think is this. I think it's a spectrum of hyperactivity in everyone, and we are a species of animals that at one time had to be distracted to live. If someone mm -hmm. was close to us, if someone was going to kill us when we were sleeping, we would wake up. And so we don't have those same dangers in modern society. So those responses aren't quite as valuable as they once right. were. Certain people have been able to tone them out enough to be able to continue to focus, but others still have a difficult time. Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting um, theory. I, I honestly cannot really tell you the backing behind that, as I have not really looked into the evolutionary basis of this. We do know it is a neurodevelopmental disease, so it is... And... Um, I think you're a little misinformed on the fact that we cannot recognize ADHD in the brain. There are actually certain structures in the prefrontal cortex that are underdeveloped. But what I didn't ADHD. say that you can't. Um, I didn't say that there's no way to look at a brain with ADHD and be like, oh, that person has ADHD. What right, I said is like, there's no point at which someone goes from having it to not having it. There's no point. We right, don't know exactly. where that is. It is non-existent. It's any I see what whatever the line, doctor decides the is, is true. There's no there's no point. Right, and you're saying that the line is very set, um, so this. but we don't know where to set it. Like, we don't know. We, we've set it somewhere, but how do we know that where we have set it is um, 
if you ha- if you have a if you have a brain tumor with cancer, you can point to the brain tumor and say, "This is the brain tumor with cancer." Mm-hmm. If you have ADHD and you're right on the threshold of where someone might right. give you ADHD right. medicine and someone might not, there is no discernible point at which you do or do not have mm-hmm. ADHD, That's which is good, why it's yeah. a spectrum. Right, exactly. It's the same thing with. Um, any anxiety disorder, right? Like yeah, if you have, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Or like I completely even understand. Depre- well, depression is probably more pinpointable. Right. No, I see what you're saying, but if you know everyone's fat, so how can it's kind of like, yeah, I get what you're saying. There's, um, there is a line, there is some territory that you get into where you're like, okay, I have this, but then where is that line exactly drawn? So, I get what you're saying with that. To people who feel that their mental state is not where they would want it to be, what would you say to them? I would say um, the brain is an incredibly, incredibly plastic organ, and it responds to our environment. We create a feedback system, and if if you're thinking specifically about executive functioning, there are exercises you can do, and it has been proven in a, in a lot of literature that these certain cognitive cognitive behavioral exercises and um, kind of tests and tasks can like you can grow better at some these certain areas of executive functioning which then impact these secondary areas which then impact these um so for example if you want to improve your working memory if you're um relatively young let's say at least under the age of 25 or 30 you're probably going to be able to increase your working memory ability if you work at it you know it's it's like anything else um a lot of people don't realize or wellness this. even. We can train our brains. Yeah, and um, just like enjoying wellness. life. Like, how many people have gone to bed every night thinking, "I don't want to be here," mm-hmm. and how easy is that to fix, right? Right. Yeah. Like where, right, right. I get what you're saying. Like, if I feel like, like there's a lot no of people, reason not to enjoy right. life. You're here. Like you are going to be here. Mm-hmm. Why not enjoy it? Why not have a have a life that you look back on and say, "I woke up every day." And I was so blessed to have my heart pounding. You know, why why mm-hmm. have these fears and anxieties overrule the life that you have? And I think it's so easy when at any point in time you can look at your phone and see any place in the world of what anyone's doing and compare yourself to that. But at the end of the day, I think that in the future we will figure out a way. And for me it's been meditation, but it could be anything self-prescribed for people to enjoy their life. Every, every day they wake up and are excited. Mm-hmm. We used to talk about, well, I've just finished reading a book. In the 30s, we were talking about how we were going to be able to live 15-hour w- work weeks. Mm-hmm. Yet still today, we somehow are working more than ever. Right. Capitalism. And, we just continue, and capitalism is just pushing us higher and higher to work more and more when we don't need to. We're pushing like, people to their edges. Um, like Pat and I were talking, yeah. we, we food is a solvable problem. We produce Absolutely. more food than we need. So like, Absolutely. it's not like we have to work in order to get the base things that we need to survive. And the amount of money it would take to feed everyone that doesn't mm-hmm. have food right now is insurmountable compared to some of our other societal priorities. Absolutely. Yeah, we're still creating businesses that force people to work 40 hours a week, don't yeah. give them the freedom and don't foster creativity and don't give them a true meaning to work towards. I, and I think that's honestly, if you look at why the majority of Americans who shouldn't, you know, reasonably be depressed and obviously not the cases where they have something inherited or like something that they can't genuinely control but i think you would kind of pinpoint it down to this this, um 
kind of soul-crushing culture we live in where you go and you work a nine-to-five at a job you don't really like, and then you come home and you wake up and you do it again for the rest of your life. Like, I mean, anyone is going to be depressed if you do that. Like, I... I, I can't really understand how it's possible to, and I'm I'm speaking from a very very lucky place because I think I genuinely found the thing that I'm very passionate about. So it it's not work to me, right? But there are people that that maybe their passions don't align with what we consider is productive for society, so they have to get a different job, or maybe they just don't have any passions, which is also okay too. And but they notice have to that work. The, the source of somebody's discomfort with their life is caused by the societal structure that we have right. established. And so what I'm saying is, what can we change about the systems that we have where we will have people who have better lives, right? Yeah. And cool. I right. think a good way to end this is to give each... Pr- if we can go around and say a thing that we do to help make sure that our mental health is good. Sure. Like, oh, one, for sure. one thing that I was talking about yesterday with someone is that I just like to write down three things I'm grateful for. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, that lets me realize a lot happened today that gave my life meaning, and then to just be able to recognize that more, like train the muscle sure. of being right. able to see things I'm grateful for. For me, I would say my thing that I do to keep my mental health in check is cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, I found it to be immensely helpful and kind of... And I think ev- anyone can benefit from it. You don't necessarily have to be mentally ill, but it helps us realize all of the cognitive errors we make and how to kind of bypass that negative thinking and um, which impacts our behavior and, you know, feelings negatively as well. And that's a huge thing. Something I think about is how many days have I gone without doing something that I really love and enjoy? I like that. And my two favorite things are hiking and music. So I just try to incorporate both of those in every day. Mm-hmm. And whenever I do that, I have a good day. So... Um, I'm not a person who has ever had issues with like depression and anxiety, which is, I think, why um, it's a bit difficult for me to understand what mm-hmm. it would be like for someone else because yeah. I myself have never experienced it. Um, but I think a big part of why that is is because I've always resorted to doing what I love rather than what everyone perceives me uh, to do. Like So... Uh, rather than spending my time on what I think other people would want what, me to do, exactly. I just do exactly what I wish to do with yeah. myself. And that's really helped me a lot. Seriously, though, thanks for uh, yeah. I mean, taking I'm, time to do this. I'm more than happy to help. I think it's a really good thing that you guys are doing. I like it a lot. Today we discuss neuroscience and mental health, bringing on neuroscience student Helen Mitchell. Thank you.